Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Let me read it. You can follow along if you so choose. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The sermon title this morning is The Great Commission in the Family, and I want to really bring together God's activity on this earth, what He's doing, this great commission that He's sent us on, Matthew 28, and this idea of the family, the family that we see from, from Genesis forward, God's idea of putting male and female together and then calling them to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. How these things go together. And a couple months back, you may have read the article. I wrote an article that uh, was received well by some, and then I had a couple people that were really uh, mean about the article, and then uh, people like Andrew and James Perry, who talked to me, who were very kind and gave some really good and, uh, and helpful um, uh, feedback, comments about the article. And, and, and I wrote the article about the, what's called the creation mandate or the cultural mandate, and what I was saying in that article is that married couples should have children. Married couples should have children. And I actually... I said it stronger than that, actually. I said that if you're not having children and you're married, it's a sin for married couples who can have children to not have children. And in that article, what I'd said was refusal to have children is the equivalent of saying back to God, we will not bear fruit and multiply. Life ends with me. I'm the point. I will not perpetuate this thing for Abel. And, uh, and so I got some good critiques about, uh, and not necessarily critiques about the content, but um, some suggestions about how I could have tied that uh, in, not just with Genesis 1, but within the rest of the scriptures, and, and given some more support to be able to say, okay, even if you don't accept the cultural mandate or accept Genesis chapter 1 as binding on New Testament uh, Christians and New, New Testament living and the New Testament family, then I could have better supported it through other, other means. And I think that that was a helpful, helpful critique. And so... I think uh, in the New Testament, and really in all of the Bible from the Old to the New, one of the things that I could, f- could have filled in that article with is just example after example that um, we see in the Scriptures. And then to the negative example, we don't have a single example in all the Bible of a married couple choosing not to have children. There's not one just example of, of couples that could have children not having children. And this was, I think, shocking because of uh, the air we breathe as a society and as a culture and, and what is the norm in today's society and based on how many kids you should have and even if you should have kids or not. It's just an option. It's just a generally accepted option of whether or not we're going to do this thing, whether or not we're going to have, well, not do the thing, but whether or not we're going to have the kids. Um, and, uh, and so I think, I think what's happened, I really believe this, and this is up for debate for sure, is I think that um, through, through feminism and through the abortion industry, I think what's successfully happened in our country, even in even our collective minds as Christians, is that, that children are seen as optional or disposable even, where, where children are, are seen as, okay, this is one option that I can, I can pursue in life, among a myriad of options, and they're all equally noble here. So I can pursue 
my lifelong dream to do this thing or that, and I could have a family and have children, and it's just kind of an either or. It's just take, take one, pick one. It's just whatever God has for you to do kind of thing. And I don't want to discredit that there are those few, very few people that are called single life that do not burn with passion. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there are those who make themselves eunuchs. Jesus said that uh, live a celibate life for the long haul. That's very, 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 very rare. Very small exceptions. There are reasons that I can't explain that some married couples cannot have children, and I want to be very uh, kind and gracious and, uh, and loving to uh, families that deal with that. And for some reason, by God's providential working, some wombs of ladies are, are not open, and that's a hard thing to explain. And it's a hard thing for, for, for couples to experience. We've had people in our church experience that, friends experience that. It's just a very difficult thing. But Psalm 127, 3 and 5, when we, we think about what the scripture's view of, of children is, and we just kind of fill in the gap and get the, this picture of the family from the Bible rather than from the culture, we, we don't see things like children being optional there. We just don't see them as, as being a, a kind of a platter of life choices that you can kind of get here and, and get there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to take this but not take this. It, this is the option. This is the plan that God has for his people and his purposes through the generations, not just of Christians, but through the, throughout the world. I mean, this is his plan to fill the earth with the glory of God, is through the family. Jesus, after all, came from a genealogy, a man named Abraham. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Psalm 127 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. A quiver full of kids. Okay, if kids are an arrow... And your arrow quiver is full of arrows, okay? The Bible tells us that, that those who have a quiver full of children are blessed. Blessed. Now, if I was to ask the general population here, as they go out to Kroger or Aldi, if they bumped into a family with five, six, seven, eight kids, if they thought that family was blessed or cursed... I think most people would say that family is definitely cursed, okay? And you may have heard before by some people, if you've had a few kids, like, don't you know how those are made? Those comments, you know, like, don't you know where those come from kind of comments? I don't think a quiver full of children, and, and help me out here, let's get a general consensus. I don't think that's viewed by the mass population as a good thing. Many, many children. I think that's seen as a liability, not a blessing. Is that true? Okay, generally, broad strokes here. Not everybody, of course, there's the exception. We're like, no, we know children are a blessing. Okay, broad strokes. So if we honestly evaluate what we think when we see a, a big family and a bunch of kids, what, what do people, even evangelicals, think about that family? Oh, I feel sorry for her. Oh, I feel sorry for that family. My goodness, how are they alive still? How have they not pulled their hair out? You know, the, the, the negative comments begin to come out. How are they doing this? You know, like, I, there's no way I could do that. But when we think about, biblically, that just children and large families even are the norm. They're just, it's just the norm in the scriptures. Families, kids, that's the, that is, if you're just trying to get the ethos of the Bible, if you're just trying to get the culture of the scriptures 
and say, what does, what does life in the community of the people of God look like? And you're, you would be consumed with families, genealogies. I mean, we have long genealogies, book after book, because families mattered. Children mattered. And we have these passages. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And so I don't think in the New Testament, every mention of, of the household codes in the New Testament, every single mention of the household codes speaks to children. God dignifies children by speaking to them. He actually speaks, children, okay, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's the first commandment with a promise. Okay, so God speaks to children, and that's just the norm. And so the Bible really has no frame of reference for married couple, if able, choosing not to have children. There's not even one example. Not just, there's just not one example in there. So what should shock us more to hear that a couple is choosing not to have a children, it should shock us more to hear a couple is choosing not to have children than it does to hear someone say, not having children is sinful. Let me, let me say that again. So in my article, what I'd written, it was, like a, it was a shock to a lot of people because it's like, okay, this is, um, we don't really regularly hear this. But if we're consumed with just the norm and the culture of the scriptures, what should shock us more as we get our noses out of the Bible and look at the world is saying, there's people who are choosing not to have children? Why would they do that? What's, like, I've got my nose in the book, and there are kids everywhere, and there's family everywhere, and there's genealogies everywhere. So there's some sort of disconnect. So I think it should shock us more to hear a trend of not having children than to, to say not having children is, a, is actually sinful, or it's at best against the biblical norm. So, <clears throat> I think we're going to see today one of the ways the Great Commission goes forth and the ways that God brings forth His mission to the world is right in the homes of Christians. The way God reaches the nations are through Christians who live in those nations and children who grow up in the homes of the Christians who live in those nations. Genius, Jesus has a, linea, a lineology, a, a lineage, he has a genealogy, a lineology, I made up a word this morning. And by the way, are we recording this, James? Okay, good. And uh, he had an earthly mother, a family line, he had earthly brothers and sisters, it all goes all the way back to Abraham, it's a, a great matter in the Bible, getting genealogies right and understanding those, the history of family and place. And grace, we see to Abraham's family, there's a promise through this family that through this family, the Savior of the world would come. The blessing to the nations would come through a family. That's how God works, is through family. And so way down the line, Abraham's great, 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 great grandchild with a capital C, Jesus, was born. And so the going, and so I'm really, and then from Pentecost forward, from Pentecost forward, the gospel has been going forth from family to family. The going of the Great Commission that's required by a majority of Christians is simply evangelizing the children who are in your home, or the grandchildren, or the nieces and nephews, the people who are the closest to you. God gives you non-believers to grow up in your home. He gives you non-believers. And commissions us with the Great Commission. How kind of God is it that our going requires, I'm going to go to the next room and tell them about Jesus. And then when they know Jesus, I'm going to do the second half of the Great Commission. Teach them to observe all that he has commanded. And so God has been so kind that our going 
It doesn't require a great, for some, they're going to be called and they are going to move to Africa. They're going to move to Antarctica. They'll move to all the nations in the, of, the, of the world. But for a majority of us, majority of us, our going is a, it's a call to action locally. That's what we're called to do. So the Great Commission is to the nations, but you've been hearing me say this over the last few months, but it's also through the generations. So Jesus is going to be with us in this task to the end of the age. Matthew 28. Go ahead and turn there to the Great Commission. Matthew 28. And I want us to get a good theology of, of, of going and a good theology of staying and of teaching. And I, this has been really fun for me to, to, to work through and study through and think through and and uh, we're going to get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 here in a little bit. And so in the breaks when I'm speaking here, if you want to go ahead and flip there, that's where we're going next. Uh, Matthew 28. Here's what the Great Commission says. Jesus gathering to the apostles that were gathering around before he ascended into heaven. He said this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go into all the world. Baptize. So after baptism, so to, to baptize, that the prerequisite to baptizing is evangelizing. You have to tell the message, okay? You have to tell the message for them to repent and to believe, respond in faith, in baptism. Then the second half is the nations then must be taught. Those who are baptized, the nations who are saved, those who are baptized must then be taught to do all that Jesus commanded them. And so teaching all that Jesus commanded them requires time and investment in a place to individuals in a place. If you're going to evangelize, baptize, and then teach, you're going, we have to have also a theology of if Jesus is going to be with us to the end of the age, this is going to be an ongoing thing to the end of the age, but this teaching is going to require a fortitude to stay. I'm going to be staying here, and I'm going to teach all that Jesus commanded to those who have been baptized in his name. So the going and the teaching are both, or the, the baptizing and the teaching are both, of the nations are both parts of the Great Commission. So I think we need to develop somewhat of a theology of going while staying put. If that makes sense. Going while staying put. Okay, everyone is commissioned to go and everyone is commissioned to go and teach wherever we are staying. Going to, to the nations isn't only going to another nation it's, hey, let's go where we are. Like, where are you? You're in a place. Go in that place. Share the gospel. Baptize and teach. Zach Eswine said this. I'm going to quote him twice today. Um, Pastors tend to read the book of Acts and the epistles as if they were Paul traveling. We have the, 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 the apostolic work of, of going everywhere, so never just in one place. Okay, we tend to think that we're reading through the lenses of as if we are Paul. They don't read it as if we are pastors on the island of Crete. A tiny little island with many churches on that island, with many elder teams on that little island in the middle of, of the Mesopotamian Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea. Is that the name of the sea? The Mediterranean Sea there? Yeah. Where the Rock of Gibraltar is? The Mediterranean. And yeah, just south of there, Terry said. I think Terry's been there before, actually. Um, 
And so we don't think about, okay, a place. Most of the people in the New Testament were not traveling. They were not going. They were, they were in one location their whole life, a 30-mile radius. They went on vacation. They went to that hill over there. Like, you see it right over there? We're going to the backside of that. That's our vacation home. And we're going to walk there, and, and then we're going to be there for three days, and then we're going to walk back two miles back home and talk about our global traveling. It's just different. It's a different day. And so I, I think... Um, that we do that with the Great Commission. I think that we think uh, that go is a command for all Christians to always be leaving, but we forget that, that teaching. In the early, church, they, the early church, they were faithful to the Great Commission, but a majority of them, they had normal everyday lives in small communities. They still had laundry to do, and they still had a normal life. They had to raise children without... They didn't even have cloth diapers. I mean, could you imagine, like, what like sanitation and life was when you had not you didn't have washing machines you had to raise uh, children that way it was just a very difficult day days that they had and hard work and in one place and it was just very normal life and they were commissioned with this great commission it wasn't just the apostles it was every believer in each one of these little communities that had the great commission given to them and they were being faithful to the great commission they still had normal life and they had to raise children in that and they were being faithful to what God called them to do. And we see the global impact that's happened through, I mean, the explosion of the gospel from the gospels and then into the book of Acts and then all the epistles forward. It's just amazing what God did in Ephesus and what God did everywhere. They were on mission as we are to baptize and to teach all that Jesus commanded of them. So, so what does it mean to go for, for those who most likely are going to be in one particular place for a majority of their life? And I, want to, I don't want to shortchange this. It may be that you've got a burden for unreached people groups, like not just unreached people groups in your home, but unreached people groups like tribes, nations throughout the globe. And we need to be challenged. And there's still people that, there's still places that have never heard the gospel of Jesus. And we are responsible to get the gospel there. And that's why we give to the cooperative program. We support different missionaries throughout the world through our giving at our church. We give 10% to the cooperative program that goes to global and international missionary work. Um, but for those people who are just staying in Corinth, we're going to be living in Corinth for the rest of our life, or I'm going to live in Ephesus the rest of my life, or in this churches at Crete the rest of my life. What's the Great Commission look like for them? And then what's it look like for us who are here in Southern Illinois, the place we love? Um, Southern Illinois, the place we love. <laughs> Not Illinois, the place we love. What does it look like for us then? Okay, so here's one example that I have loved. I read this a few years ago and it just stuck with me. Uh, this is from Steve Farrar's book. He wrote a book in 1991 called Point Man that really launched 90s men's ministry. And it was like a big thing with promise keepers and all this. But uh, he got this from a, a, a famous gentleman who, who told the story. And um, I'll just let the story speak for itself. And hang with me, this, I'm, I'm reading more than you're supposed to, like I'm going to read a page, just, you guys can handle it, okay? His life could not have been going any better, and then the phone rang. He was an evangelist who preached the word with the Holy Spirit's authority and power. He was the most sought after evangelist in his denomination. If you wanted, to come to, wanted him to come preach at your church, you had to get in line and wait for a minimum of four years. He was a man who was enjoying the favor of God on his life and ministry. The numerous invitations were always a pull from his family, but he and his wife settled on a formula 
that worked well and enabled him to spend time at home with his bride and son that he dearly loved. The formula was simple. He would go out and preach for two weeks, and he would come back home for two weeks. And then he would go out again for two weeks and come back home for another two weeks. Everything was working well, and God was blessing it. His marriage was strong. His boy, now a teenager, was doing well in school and athletics. His ministry was taking off like a rocket. And then the phone rang. It was a very short phone call from his wife. She had just had the latest series of arguments with their 16-year-old son. She had asked him to do something that he told her point blank he wasn't going to do it. The six-foot-two boy was wearing her down. His strong will was starting to take a toll. She called her husband and in fairly short conversation reported the events that had just taken place. And she simply said, I need you. He replied that he would cancel the remaining meetings and drive home immediately. Neither one of them knew that their son was listening to the conversation from the next room. The teenager knew he was pushing the limits and was curious to see how his father would respond. He would soon find out. His father arrived home within a few days. A for sale sign was in the front yard. The father then canceled every one of his scheduled meetings for the next few years and accepted the small pastor of a small church in another state. For the next two years, until his son graduated from high school and went off to college, he pastored the small church and mentored his growing son. With his son headed off to college, he, he, he was ready to return to evangelism. But in those few years, multiple changes had taken place in the church denomination. Many of the older pastors had retired and been replaced by younger men who were unfamiliar with his ministry. Invitations were less frequent. Those few years away from evangelism had cost him dearly in terms of his career and calling. Quite frankly, to a degree, it would never, never recover. The decision to go home had come at a great price. But because he made the tough decision and went home to focus on his family, years later, his son would become a ministry known, would begin a ministry known as Focus on the Family. Dr. James Dobson Sr. went home, and that's what going, that's what living out the Great Commission in his life looked like, was stop preaching, stop traveling, and go home. And he accepted the small pastorate. He went home. There, there's uh, two ladies living in the city of Lystra. Lystra is an interesting town. It's in the Galatian territory. And Lystra was very hostile. Remember Paul's first missionary journey. And Paul actually was stoned in the city of Lystra. And he got back up. And if you remember, right after he was stoned, he just got back up and started preaching again. It was like, all right, well, who can I go share with the gospel with now? And just kept preaching. Most likely, there are these two ladies who later became Christians were there at the stoning of Paul. And most likely saw that or witnessed that or heard of that. Years later, at some point, these two ladies, they become Christians. And the gospel had come to Lystra at some point from Paul's preaching and then his leaving. And he went back through and established elders in each town on his way back through. So at some point, there was a small church that started there. These two ladies become Christians and they live this normal life in the small town of Lystra. Uh, you can find the ruins. You can go online. There's the ruins of the city of Lystra. And these ladies just did their normal thing. Now, what does a Great Commission look like in a small town like the city of Lystra? What does it look like? Repetition, routine, going. They had a sincere faith, we find out in the scriptures. They had a sincere faith. And they had a son and a grandson. And we don't know about the man or the men in their life. They just loved Jesus with a sincere faith. And they loved their son and the grandson. And so they probably never lived or never went between 30 miles or 30 mile radius of their house ever. And yet, the Great Commission for them looked like living faithfully with that sincere faith, raising that little boy to know and follow Jesus. And I'm talking about Timothy's mother and grandmother 
Eunice, and Lois. It's an interesting story. Faithful to the Great Commission by evangelizing and disciple the little boy that's in their home. Now, this goes into all the world. So this, this, this Great Commission is to all the world making disciples. Okay, All of the world making disciples. <coughs> now, God has placed each one of us in a nation. We live in the United States of America. We are in a nation on this globe. We get a globe out. We look at all the nations of the world, and we are placed in a nation. We are here in the United States of America. God has placed us here, and he has determined the places that we are to dwell and live, not just the nation in which we live, but according to Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, he is actually like the boundaries of our dwelling places. God has determined that this is, this is where Jared and Jordan live, 325 Ashwood Lane. This is where they're to live, the city of Carbondale. This is where I want them. And there are a lot of factors you could play in, like what if we stayed at, what if we stayed at our 606 Center Street in Carterville? Well, then that's where he would have had us stay and dwell, okay? The point is that God puts us where he wants us, not just locationally, but generationally, like the times that we were born. He, he established those things before the foundation of the world, and he is strong enough to see fit his plans throughout the generations. And so we are where we are to live at the time we are to live. And he's put us here for a reason and with a mission. And according to Acts 17, he does this, that we would seek him and that we'd find him, that he has his purposes, and he says that he's not far from us, he's like he's not even far from us now, and he did this, so we would seek him and find him, that he's doing these things for his purposes in our lives, eternal purposes in our lives. And so since we have a place and a time, Zach Eswine says this, if the, to quote him again, if the mission of God is to the world, someone has to reach Webster Groves. That's where he lives. We could say it in our way. Somebody has to make Carbondale, Southern Illinois, their great ambition. Somebody has to say, this is the place that God has put me. This is the nation that God has put me. These are the people. These are my people. This is whom God loves and has sent me to. That they would seek Him and find Him. And they would find out that He's not very far from them all along. It was like He had haunted them their entire life. We are commissioned in a time and a place. And from the old to the new, we see... <clears throat> I skipped a section. Um, we see... I'll, I'll say from the old to the new here in a second. But... Not only do we live in that place, within your city and within the nation that you dwell, you have a home. God has placed you in your home. And then put people in your home. Like, put people, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, just family to grow up. And that's the typical. Most people get married and have children still. Most people do. People have less and greater numbers of children, but that's still... Uh, a thing that people do. People get married and have children. So God has put people in your home. And if the world is going to be reached, not only does somebody have to make Southern Illinois their great ambition, but since eternal significance dwells within the square footage of our home, if the world's going to be reached, somebody has to reach your address. If the world's going to be reached, somebody has to make your grandkids' soul the great ambition of their life. The center, we could say, of evangelism and discipleship for families with children is those children God has placed in the home. The epicenter, the central place in which we live out the Great Commission is the non-believers God puts in our home, and when they become believers, that becomes the great place of discipleship. And we say, well, I don't have a long people, list of people I'm discipling from the church. Well, if you're discipling your family, you do. You do. And you're helping the health of the church by evangelizing, being committed to evangelism 
and discipleship within the context of the home. So what does, what does the Great Commission in the home, this is kind of all building, what does that look like? The Great Commission in the home look like? From the old to the new, there's a consistent weight, a way of doing family life. And I want to hit Deuteronomy 6. And so if you would go ahead and turn there. And we could say that Ephesians chapter 6 is saying the exact same thing as Deuteronomy chapter 6 is. Um, Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What, what does this look like from the old to the new? The family committed to the hearts of their children, the lives of their children, and the great commission, God's mission that he has sent us on. Deuteronomy 6 provides a really great outline because it's not just about teaching the law. It's also about teaching the saving power of God. But first, we start with setting them up for grace. Okay, These are principles that we see from God's word that we need to implement, that we need to do as God's people, that we need to make a priority. This is the, the culture of the home of the people of God. <coughs> Deuteronomy 6, starting verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. All these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This, okay, what does the Great Commission look like? Let's set them up for grace. First, love God with all you are. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this comes only by the grace of God. We know that that command given as a command alone is utterly devastating because it, it shows us and it drives us to Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, oh no. Okay. I need Jesus. But as we've been talking about in the book of Romans, once we know Jesus, once we know the finished work of Jesus, that we love him from the inside out. We have this new heart and we love God. We are to actually love him. And to fight every single day to love Him more. And our children should be observing us, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, my parents love Jesus. They're, they love Jesus. And they love Him more than they love me. They are committed to Him. And they love Him. And they just know it. They should catch us in prayer, or studying the Word. Or they should know our patterns of... When we spend time in the Word, and they should see us as we go on the way, that our love for Jesus isn't just designated to our prayer closet, but when we go on a walk, we see a leaf, and we start talking about the beauty of God because of how intricate this leaf has been made. When we talk about the glories of creation, or we talk about how wonderful it is that, we, uh, that God has put us together and His kindness in that. And <coughs> as you go on your way, we... We never let our kids wonder. We just, we just never let them wonder. Does, does my parents, do they really love God? Are they phonies? Are they just religious yahoos that put on a Christian face when they come to church? Or are they the real deal? And that should be what we're aiming at. The real deal. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are living for that all the days of our lives. And we're making charts and graphs and we're doing everything we can. How can I get better this year? How can I love God more this year? How can I get people in my life reminding me of God's grace more this year? How can I get grace bombs texted to my phone every day? 
How can I get people around me to pray for me? And, and so each year we grow in that. We grow in walking with God and loving Him. Let, us, let them see us knowing and walking with God that we, we don't just get old and bored with God and then show them, hey, this is what you have to look forward to. Really despising going to church, but doing it for the kids. So we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. They need to see us loving God and being changed by God's love from the inside out. And also, secondly, we see in this, we see a, not only would we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we also see a multi-generational vision. We see a multi-generational vision. Um, In verse 2, I didn't read starting in verse 1, but in verse 2, let's just go up and read in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, of the rules that the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 a multi-generational vision. I want to challenge you to live with your great-grandchildren in mind. Live with your great-grandchildren in mind. Living for a legacy of vanity is foolish. If you're wanting to build a name for yourself for the generations that follow you, that's a problem. But if you're wanting to leave a godly legacy, men... A godly patriarchal legacy. Ladies, a godly matriarchy in your family. Not of rule, but of godly femininity down through the generations. If you want to leave these things to the next generations, that is a really good thing. To fight for the glory of God for my grandkids. I want to live in such a way that I'm living with my great-grandchildren in mind. Men in particular lead in this way. As the leaders of the home commissioned by God to lead our families, let us think with our great-great-grandchildren in mind. The covenant people of God always had a multi-generational expectation of God's faithfulness. And even as people who are generally uh, baptistic or non-denominational, we need to recover a sense of multi-generational faithfulness from God. Expect God to save your children. Expect it. Just expect it. I'm... I'm expecting that my children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, that there's going to be a legacy of faith, that God is going to be faithful not just in my family, but in my children's family and my children's children's family. God's people have always recognized multi-generational faithfulness of God down through the generations. The people of God have always expected this. Of all the people in the world, get this, God gave your children to you. And has placed you in a home where they're going to hear about God's grace. They're going to hear about God's love. They're going to be connected to churches that love God's grace and want to hear about God's love. and are teach- Think how, about how kind God has been to your children and grandchildren to put you in their life. That's not arrogant. That's just recognizing the grace of God. God has been really kind to surround your children with people who are praying for them. Really kind to give his children to you. Give your children, give his children, your, the kids that you have born into your home. And I think that they are to hear from this passage, they're to hear about 
God's law and God's gospel. Number three, we see in this that we are to teach commandments, teach God's commandments. In verse two, it says that we are to fear the Lord. And uh, um, let's see, in verse one again, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you're going to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's sons by keeping the statutes and commandments. And then we are to command in verse six, these things I command you today will be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk about them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. We are to teach <coughs> God's law to our children, His commands. What does God expect from us? Now, I'm not talking about teaching all the Mosaic law and pulling out all the Mosaic law to our children. And here's all 614 laws. We need to obey these and let's go get a lamb out back and... and Set up an altar, build a tabernacle. Not talking about that, but I am talking about as we are reading the scriptures and as you're doing your family worship at home, we should be telling them here's what God expects of us. Here's what we are to do. Here's what God has commanded us. Here's, here's the kind of people that He calls us to be. Here are the Beatitudes, and this is expected of us. We should be obeying this. We should be, the meek shall inherit the earth. We should be walking in humility. We should be teaching our kids what it means to honor us. Honor your father and mother. That's commanded of them. That's expected of them. Obey and obedience to God is what we should be teaching them. We need them to have a high view of God's law. A high view of God's law. What God says goes, and I know that. We should be teaching that to our children. Why should we teach that to our children? Why should we do that? Well, for one, if we're living that way, we're going to be living, even if they don't understand, uh, we should be living in such a way where obedience is expected to us, and they are modeled that by us being obedient to God. There's this obedience to God's commands from us, and then we're expecting that from them, and that is a really, really good thing. So we should be living differently than the world. There should be, a, like, we should be really weird, depending upon how weird your society and culture is, we, we should stand out a lot in our day right now. A lot. And we do. And if you just ask, uh, you know, the general polls on Facebook or your friends or your coworkers uh, how they live life, and you'll, you'd see really quickly the people of God live life a lot differently. We should be anyways. And I think, by and large, a majority of our, our church families and the people that are here, we, would, we live a lot different than the average Joe Schmo, Joe and Sally in the world. They're just... And we should be weird. The things we think and the things we say and the things we believe should be just radically countercultural. I mean, Amen. it should, radically. Because we've got our nose in the book and we're obeying God's law and we want to do what God tells us to do. We want to obey. We're not the authority over our, our own life. And so we obey. And we teach our kids to do the same. And all of life, diligently teach our kids. As we go, where we go, here's what God calls us to do. Here's, how the, here's what's expected of us. And everything in the world can be a metaphor. It can be turned into a metaphor about God's love. I heard my, my friend one time talk about, um, talk about how uh, dog poop is kind of like sin. You remember Andy Hannon always talked about that? Where you step, sin is kind of like dog poop. You step in it and you just can't get that stuff out. Just no matter what you do, it just makes it worse. You just, you get the, the, the knife and you dig in there. You get the water hose you spray it out, and then your whole shoe gets wet. There's just no solution. It just, it's just time. And, and, and so you turn it into a metaphor to the negative. We can find metaphors all, all around us about God's love and His grace and be creative as we go, as we 
talk on the way. This is what is expected of us. This is what we should do. This is the culture of biblical families. Okay? Now, why, why the law? Why do we start with God's law? Expecting obedience from children is crucial for them to understand the grace of God and to understand the love of God. That there is a way to live life that God expects us to live. And if our children and grandchildren don't understand God's law, they will not be able to understand God's grace. They just won't. Because there needs to be a crisis point in the lives of our children. There needs to be, if it's not a crisis point, a season of life where they start to ask questions. These non-believers that go, are born into our home, they should be at some point wondering, the rest of the world doesn't live this way. At some point they're going to be exposed to it, some younger or some older. They're going to realize we live differently than my neighbors live. They're, why, why do we do things? Why are we always asking? Why are we always putting our nose in the Bible and saying, well, what does God have to say about this? Why are we doing these things this way? When the law does its work, look at verse 20. Here's what's so interesting. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the... Imagine your kid just coming. Some of you had conversations with your children like this or grandchildren. Hey, Dad, what's the meaning of doing things this way? These commandments and the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded of you. What's the meaning of this? Why do we do this? Why do we do it this way? I've got a better way. I want to do it. I want to do me. I want to live my truth. I want to do things the way I want to do it. That's what my friends say. Or that's what I see on TV. Why, why do we do things like this? <coughs> when they're familiar with God's law and they're expected to obey, some point, we're praying and we're hoping and we're leading them to this point. When they say this and ask this and we get to, in verse 21, respond with so much grace. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord God commanded us to do these statutes to give to our fathers. The Lord commanded us to do these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our God all for, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Now, if you'll notice that in this, even in the Old Testament, grace is that great motive. Grace is the great motive for the obedience. Great is grace is the point of giving the law and the commandments to our children. The culture of the home being this law, because we want them to get to this point. Why are we doing this this way? Because, son, I want to tell you about the grace of God. And to put it in modern day language here, it's like, hey, son, let me, det- let me just tell you. Son, I broke God's law. And I was trapped in Egypt, my own Egypt. And I, I was hopeless. It's helpless. I couldn't get out. I couldn't save myself. I couldn't rescue myself. I grew up religious. And I grew up in a Christian circles. And I grew up just self-righteous. And I didn't know about the grace of God. And I was hopeless. I couldn't save myself. And God rescued me with His mighty right hand. His arm was not too short that it could not save. He saved me by His grace and by His power. Me, the lawbreaker, the one who didn't live the way He wanted me to live. And He rescued me. And He has called me. And he has brought me into safety. And He has protected me. And he given me, He's given me promises. 
He has given me an inheritance and promised me an inheritance. He has been exceedingly kind to me. And I love him and it's my joy to obey him. That's why we live this way, son. That's why we live this way, daughter. That's why we live this way, grandson. That's why we live this way, granddaughter. The families at our church live different than the people in the world. We don't just go with the flow because God's law brings us to God's gospel. Bring them to the grace of God. We want to parent and grandparent them into the family of God. That's the goal. And then teach that family of God how to do all that Jesus commanded of us. Do all that Jesus commanded of them. We want to live the Great Commission out with who God has given us right in front of us. We want them to know God through His redemptive work. But then there's something sad. I just want to end. There might be some repetitive stuff that, uh, and I'm okay with that, that Brian and I bring. Um, but I want us to finish in Judges chapter 2. And this is a really sad report, and then we'll be done. Look at verses 10 through 13 in chapter 2. This is after Joshua had passed away. And they were in the promised land, and that generation had died. Okay. Okay, look at verse um, 10. And that generation also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Keep in mind those two things. Did not know the Lord and did not know the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now notice... They did not know the Lord. Now, here, here's the deal. Hear me say this. I mean, we, clearly we can't determine the salvation of our kids, but I think we can expect it. I think we should. I think we should be expecting the salvation of our, our children. Uh, young and old, that's going to be my expectation. To the day, I, I'm just believing within me, believe that God has given us, and those boys are going to be raised in the discipline and the structure of the Lord. They're going to know Jesus, follow them all the days of their life. And if, no matter how old they are, if they don't know Jesus, I'm going to keep expecting that. I'm just going to keep expecting it. But we can't determine it, okay? But here's what we can make sure and not do. It wasn't that they just did not know the Lord. It was that they did not know the work that the Lord had done for Israel. So there was a failure of the previous generations to not... Okay, again, we can't determine here, okay, is there going to be faith here? They did not tell of the work God had done for Israel. They just didn't tell it didn't mean anything to him. Just didn't care. And something that impacted Andrew and I, Andrew, if you don't know Andrew, Andrew and I go way back, and um, there was a quote that I think D.A. Carson mentioned, and he got it from Mennonites or something like that, that one generation knows and loves the gospel of Jesus. The next generation assumes the gospel. Then there's like two more steps to the next, then the final generation abandons or hates the gospel. Okay? And what I want us to avoid is being a generation that assumes the gospel or teaches our children to assume the gospel. I want them to see that we love the grace of God. 
And I do not, do not want our, our children to grow up in homes where the gospel is just assumed. Well, they get it. They know it. They know it. Because in just one generation, they did not know the work that God had done for Israel. Can you imagine? Like, how did they not tell that? How did they not tell? Look, God brought us through the sea. He brought us out of Egypt. How did they get over that? It became old hat. And friends, we can never let the grace of God become old hat to us. I mean, ever. It, it just doesn't need to be that way. There's no excuse for children to not know what God has done for you. There's no excuse for our children and grandchildren to not know what God has done for you. And if you don't have a way to say that, get a way to say that. If you, don't, if you look back in your testimony and, well, I don't know how to explain to my kids the grace of God, find a way to do it. Because you had your Egypt. Find it. Remember it. Don't forget it. And don't forget the God who pulled you out of it. Let us not be a generation who has kids and grandkids who grow up and I, I don't want to walk in naivete. There's no sure-proof plan here. You guys, we, we all know that. But rest assured, Ransom and Valor Sparks, and I want you to hold me accountable for this, they will know that their daddy loves the grace of God. They will know the redemptive work of Jesus. Now, I can't make them know God. I can expect it, but I can sure... I can sure make sure they know the stories of what God did for me. And Jordan can make sure to know that they know the stories of what God has done for her. I don't want there to be a question in their mind whether or not we know and love the Lord. So we are to raise them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And here's the deal. Down through the generations. If we're committed to this, if we're committed to this, and if we don't just, like the James Dobson thing, okay, my life and my ambition, I want to I make my life and my ambition to see the gospel go forth to the next generation. And the next generation. And I want this legacy not to be what I accomplished in life, or what I did in life. I want it to be about this legacy of faith, a sincere faith like Lois and Eunice, that goes down through Timothy, and through his pen with the Apostle Paul, we see all that God has done. We want to be preachers and proclaimers of the Great Commission in our home, teaching our children to do all that God has commanded of us, baptizing them and teaching them until God takes us home or He returns. Let's pray.